hello and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar, where we talk about military history from ancient to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and today's guest is Dan Preston, who discusses the War of 1812 and the U.S. military in the years after. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Daniel Preston, editor of The Papers of James Monroe, Volume 7, Selected Correspondence and Papers, April 1814 to February 1817. And just to tell my listeners, um, despite the dry-sounding nature of that title, um, this period is uh, marks the um, middle to ending of the War of 1812, and also uh, James Monroe's participation in dealing with um, Europe, now that the Napoleonic Wars um, had ended, and also dealing with Spain, which was dealing with um, revolutions in its own American colonies. So plenty of military history activity going on. Thank you for speaking with me. I'm pleased to do it. And the papers of James Monroe are published by ABC Clio, and this volume 7 was published March 6, 2020. How did you get into studying and editing um these papers? I have worked in editing of historical documents since I was in graduate school in the 1970s, and I've worked on a number of projects in 1989-1990. There was an opportunity to start uh, Monroe Papers, and um, with my experience with editing and in my background in working in period of Monroe's career, um, it was something that I was interested in taking on, and the people who were interested in starting the project were interested in having me do it, so we did, and it was kind of um, hand-to-mouth there for, for the first couple of years of getting things going, mm-hmm. um, but then uh, we were fortunate after a couple of years to get a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and that really got us going on a pretty even keel and um and then on from there so tell me about the um the papers that have to do with um the war the war of 1812 and what you found well there. yes they actually start in volume six mm-hmm. um Mo was a member of james madison's cabinet um uh march 1811 through um 1817, uh, when Madison left the presidency and Monroe, Monroe, Monroe assumed the the, um, the office, and we you know, sort of calculating how many documents we would have to publish and all, we decided to do it in, in you know, to do that period in in two volumes. So volume six goes from Monroe's appointment in April 1811, Secretary of State, up through. March of 1814, and then Mighty Seven starts with April of, of, of 1814 and then goes up through uh, to the end of the cabinet years in, in, in February. And uh, breaking there, I mean, it was roughly, you know, that was the three-year point. That was halfway through. Mm-hmm. You know, so so the, the, the War of 1812 years actually start uh, with Volume 6, and and Really, they start with the beginning of it, uh, with Monroe coming on as Secretary of State and, in 1811 and, and engaging in last-ditch negotiations with, with, with the British minister in Washington to, 
try to reach some sort of diplomatic settlement, mm-hmm. uh, which which they were not able to do. And Monroe, Madison, pretty much concluded by pretty much by the end of eighteen eleven that there would be no diplomatic settlement, and they were then they started actually thinking about um, going on to a war footing. Yeah. So really, pretty much all of Volume Six deals with the war, and then and then going into um, into Volume Seven. Yeah. You know, but then there's you know, as you mentioned earlier, there's also all the others. There's incursions into Florida. Mm-hmm. There's incursions into Texas uh, that, that happened during this period. And many of them, Monroe, as Secretary of State, was dealing with those sorts of unauthorized military operations as well. Hmm. So there's, there's, yeah, so those two, the war years really, I mean, as, as they did with, with his period in the cabinet, they really pretty much dominate the period. So you're saying there were unauthorized um, military actions by the U.S. into Spanish territories? Um, by U.S. and um, you know, European, na- European nationals as well who organized these various incursions into Florida, into Texas, trying to revolutionize them, trying to establish them as as independent uh, countries. And there's medium amount of controversy over how much involvement there was on the part of, of the national government in, in, in these in these filibustering expeditions. Mm-hmm. And my sense is, you know, sort of not, you know, they they, they, they watched them but there was they really they, they weren't they weren't covert operations. Hmm. Uh, they were simply you know, sort of individuals um, were organizing these private expeditions or engaging with residents of Florida or Texas to try to foment some sort of revolution against the Spanish. Hmm. Um, but you know, c- contrary to what 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 some some s- s- people who have studied this have claimed. Um, you know, they, they, there really was not any kind of, as they say, there wasn't any kind of covert, you know, by, by my life, there were no, there wasn't any covert national government support for these things. Mm-hmm. What was, so, uh, what was Monroe's feelings about the fact that the U.S. military wasn't, was nearly non-existent where, you know, during this time? Um, uh, it was something that had concerned him. For quite a while, he had been he had been governor of Virginia, eighteen hundred eighteen two, and pushed very hard uh, for reforming the state militia, for better training, better arming of of the militia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as as with most national leaders from that period, they they saw the militia as being the core of, of national defense. That you know, there, there would be a national army professional army, regular army, that would be sort of the nub of any kind of defensive action. But really the bulk of the soldiery would come would come out of the militia. And you know, he was from the time earlier, from from when he was in the Continental Congress in the seventeen eighties when he was governor, uh, up to when he was president, he kept pushing for a more uniform a, you know, a, a better 
system of, of training for the militia because you know they they really did see them as being core to any national defense. You know what I think they would really like would have been sort of the national guard system that developed in in the early and mid 20th century. I think that's really what they have, would have liked to have seen of where there was sort of a you know, a nationalized system for these state military units that when there was a need for uh, some sort of national defensive or military action, that then these better trained uh, state units could be, be pulled into national service. That's, that's, that's really the way they viewed it. Uh, but he was, I mean, he repeatedly, you know, sort of throughout his career in government prior to being in Madison's cabinet being president, um, he saw he saw it as a weak point that that there was one that you know, there wasn't there wasn't a uniform system of training and it was whatever the states did and and, and then the quality varied um, quite a bit but it was it was it was it was largely substandard so it was it was certainly something that he saw a need for improvement mm-hmm. um, and just sort of some sort of more uh, comprehensive national military planning. Uh, you know, he, he, he was in, in, in France in 1805 when there was a lull in the Napoleonic Wars, and he wrote back to President Jefferson, and he said, there are all of these out-of-work French army engineers here. We need a system of coastal defenses in the United States. Why don't we hire some of these engineers to come and build these forts for us? Mm-hmm. And nothing happened, but, you know, sort of, you know, even, you know, at that early period, 1804, mm-hmm. he was looking at national defense and, you know, was thinking about what, what was needed in those areas. So it was something that, that, that was certainly on his mind throughout his career. So during the War of 1812, what were his thoughts on, uh, things weren't going well? Um, I guess not until the very end. There were some victories, um, but but what were his feelings? He was he was really frustrated with it. Um, he he when he when he first became Secretary of State in eighteen eleven, he very much hoped that he could reach some sort of diplomatic settlement. He thought that the U.S. had had earlier opportunities that had been missed. And so he was hoping that, that they could somehow reach something, but it was, it was simply too late. Uh, you know, sort of the United States had become too adamant in, in what it wanted and the British were adamant in what they were not going to give. And so they went back and forth on these, on these negotiations. But then once he was convinced that negotiations were going to fail, he became a very strong proponent for military preparedness and was frustrated throughout the war at repeated failures and what he considered to be be in action. One thing that that annoyed him to no end was the fact that the British had a a squadron in Chesapeake Bay throughout the war. And, you know, know, this wasn't much an an insult as as any kind of military threat, just the fact that the British could operate in interior waters of the United States, and the U.S. couldn't wouldn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And on several occasions, he made suggestions to President Madison for military action against this squadron, 
And the response was always, well, we can't do that, or it's not worth it, it's risky something. So he always wanted to see a more vigorous prosecution of the war, but until he became Secretary of War in, um, in, in, in September of 1814, he largely felt, he felt pretty powerless. I'm speaking with Daniel Preston, editor of the papers of James Monroe, Volume 7. You can find more information by going to the website for the University of Mary Washington and searching for Monroe Papers. If you like this podcast, please remember to rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Also, please sign up for my newsletter at warscolor.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. Please follow, like, and comment on YouTube at Warscolor1945, on Twitter and Facebook at Warscolor, and on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please check out my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com and fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please check out my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. Once you did become Secretary of War, what... Uh what was he able to push through that he wanted, and what was he not able to? Well, what he was really pushing for never came to be because the war ended. But mm. when he became secretary in in the fall of 1814, well, you know, the immediate demands were uh, defense of Baltimore, defense of the Mid Atlantic area. You know, right after the after the capture of Washington, and so you know, that that was a lot of what was taking up a lot of his attention. But then, once that crisis passed, um, there it was. You know, there, 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 he had he had two major major interests. I think you know, sort of one was a a really a, a comprehensive system for for defense of the country. You know, he realized that all parts of the country were at risk for attack. And the country had been divided into military districts. And so he concentrated on getting good officers commanding the districts. And, you know, so it's just, you know, sort of just, you know, trying to fashion a comprehensive plan for, um, for that defense. You know, I mean, you know, so the most obvious that we know about, of course, is, is, is Andrew Jackson's actions in the Gulf area, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with Florida and the defense of Mobile and then the defense of New Orleans, and these sort of things. But it was all through, you know, sort of one example of this, uh, there was a report that the British intended to land a force on the eastern end of Long Island and establish a base there and use that to attack New England, New York, New Jersey, you know, the Mid-Atlantic, New England and Mid-Atlantic area. And so it was so what, what he was concentrating on was coordinating with Henry Dearborn, who was the district commander in New England, and Daniel Tompkins, who was the district commander in New York, and you know, sort of coordinating you know, defensive measures uh, to protect that region from the, this possible threat uh, uh, to it. That never materialized, but that was the kind of thing he was focusing on. What he was really pushing toward, though, was the campaign for the summer of, of 1815. Mm-hmm. Uh, which they saw as critical. So a, a new campaign into Canada, um, the British had occupied northern Maine. They were organizing an expedition 
to um, try to drive the British out of northern Maine, uh, certainly defense of, of, of the Gulf Coast. And so there's a lot of planning on this. Congress had approved uh, a system of recruiting, uh, you know, sort of one, one problem, you know, it was sort of not just, you know, what you mentioned earlier, militia, but it was having and added, being able to put an adequate force in the field and to, and to have a force that they could rely on, that they knew how many they were going to have. Mm-hmm. And Congress had approved uh, legislation that allowed the states to provide volunteer regiments for the National Army, kind of like what you know we had, but what was used during the Civil War. You know, so you know, and the most obvious example again of this is you know Andrew Jackson's uh, Tennessee Volunteers, mm-hmm. who were you know these state units, and so you know these were incorporated, so they were looking at getting um, these volunteer regiments into the field, uh, who would who you know they would be recruited for a year's service, um, you know, rather than coming out for 60 days or 90 days or whatever the militia would do, mm-hmm. so that, you know, they could have the contingency of knowing that there would be uh, a ready, ready, a ready in hand military force to, to conduct these operations. Mm-hmm. And so it was, you know, organizing that they had adequate soldiery, perfecting the supply system, perfect, perfecting the command system. And, you know, sort of really looking toward these, these summer campaigns. Um, how effective he was, we all know, because they never took place. Hmm. The war, the war ended in, 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 in February, March, 1815. So the, so those summer campaigns never came into being. Hmm. They were fairly optimistic because, you know, as you noted, there were these successful operations toward the end of the war. There was the victory at Baltimore, at, at Lake Champlain. Uh, Duncan MacArthur led an mounted expedition from Detroit and penetrated up into Ontario. You know, so it's it's what happens in 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 a lot of wars, a lot of military situations, uh, where you know if you're going to be successful, where you 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 start out with with commanders who may not be that good, and they fall by the wayside, and better. A better officer corps is formed through the experience of the war, mm-hmm. and this is where the United States seemed to be going into 1815. There seemed to be a good, solid officer corps. There was a system for providing adequate number of troops. The supply system was improving, mm-hmm. so there was a fair amount of optimism that that they could mount some successful campaigns going 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 into the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but as they say, you know, sort of it never happens, so we really can't judge how how successful or how good Monroe was was at this kind of planning or organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he, he 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 certainly was pursuing it, and yeah, it went the other way as well. Uh, Monroe had been in government forever; he knew lots of people. People knew him. Mm-hmm. He knew a lot of the army officers. And there was a general feeling of confidence in his ability. Hmm. You know, I mean, after after the foundering around that had been going on, and the extreme dislike of of, of John Armstrong, the, the preceding Secretary of War, having Monroe going to that position, it contributed to a sense of optimism that 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 the war effort would in, would improve. That there was somebody who would bring energy and ability. 
into in, 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 into that position and be able to uh, supervise you know the overall organization of national defense. So there was a there was so there was a, you know a, a sense that he could do it. Uh, he certainly thought he could do it. Whether he would have been, we don't know. What were, did he ever? Ex- did Monroe ever express feelings of worry that Britain would, you know, reconquer the U.S. and reincorporate it, or was that just, you know, wh- where did he stood on stand on that? No, he was frustrated with the disorganized war effort, but he never he never despaired of it. He never thought that the U.S. would actually lose the war. Um, being reconquered, not so much. I mean, what they were worried about more was the British being able to usurp territory, you know, along the Canadian border. This was the the big concern with the with the with the British having taking control of the northern part of Maine. Hmm. Is if they were able to hang on to it when the war ended, then possibly the U.S. would lose lose that territory. Uh, there was concerns that they would be able to get control of territory along the Great Lakes, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, they were worried about the the incursions into the Gulf Coast area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there was a real concern that if Great Britain won a victory at New Orleans and gained control of the mouth of the Mississippi, that they would never give it up again. Mm-hmm. So it was more concerns about, about incremental losses of territory rather than some kind of wholesale defeat that would um, would cause a, a loss of, of independence or liberty or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, Monroe very much believed that the European monarchies wanted to destroy the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't think they could do it during War of 1812, but mm-hmm. it was a real concern. I mean, you know, from our point of view, you're looking at it, 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 it's, almost, it's almost like he had a Cold War mentality mm-hmm. of um, this opposition of totally incompatible political systems, that monarchy and republicanism, were, were you know, they, they, they could possibly coexist, but very nature of what republicanism was, was a threat to monarchy. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, he very much argued throughout throughout his life. I mean, sort of starting in the seventeen eighties and nineties, and you know, on up. And, you know, it is what he's talking about with the Monroe Doctrine mm-hmm. is the monarchies see republicanism as a threat. They see the United States as the seat of republicanism, as the source of this threat to their very existence. And if they can destroy us, they will. You know, he saw opportunities, as they say, for coexistence. He thought. That uh, commerce would be a common ground. That you know, the European needs for American products, the American need for European products, or whatever. That this would provide a common ground where they could tolerate each other and you know and exist in, in amity. But you know, at root, he was he was very much aware, very much concerned about this inherent difference between the two. And, uh, I mean, he saw it with the French Revolution. You know, the European monarchies are going to suppress the French Revolution, and then they're going to come after us. 
Hmm. And then with, with the South American revolutions, uh, the monarchies are going to suppress the revolutions in South America, and then they're going to come after us. Mm-hmm. Um, he, 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 he was very much concerned about this sort of thing. But uh, when it came to actual cases of it, he wasn't that particularly worried. He, during, he, 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 he never, I, I don't recall him ever expressing any kind of doubt that the U.S. would the war would somehow be subjugated. And then there were some later instances when he was president, when there were some talks of war against Spain, and he more or less uh, was able to put a damper on them and say, no, these, these are not serious threats. We're really not in danger here. So, you know, on a philosophical basis, he saw, he saw a threat. When it came to actual, actual circumstances, uh, he had fairly strong confidence in, in the ability of the United States to defend itself. So a bit of a tangent in this period, um, how, how did he feel about Native Americans? Were they, did he consider that a military threat or a more diplomatic issue or? No, he did consider them a military threat. And that was part, when he became president, there was, there was a whole, a whole spat of treaties of, of natives ceding their land to the U.S. And this was really part of his, his driving concern was that, um, you know, during the war, a number of, of, of tribes that fighting with the British, uh, were being supplied by the British, by the Spanish, and saw them as, you know, basically, you know, a, a, certain tribes as being potentially um, internal enemies. But he was also concerned about relations between the two. Mm-hmm. He didn't think that natives were innately inferior to whites, but he thought their their culture was inferior, that a hunter-gatherer culture was inferior to commercial agricultural society. Mm-hmm. And he took it as a given that the United States was going to expand across the continent. I mean, you know, it was it was way before the term manifest destiny came up, and I don't know that he thought about it as you know, sort of some sort of divine plan. It just he he, you know, he looked at the world and he looked at the United States and he you know he saw this was going to happen and you know he basically thought it was a good thing that for European American farmers would expand across the country and they would cultivate the land and all this sort of thing. And his, his thoughts was, were that, um, you know, the na- that, that the native populations would not be able to resist this movement, mm-hmm. that they could fight, but, you know, they would lose. And so he was pushing toward, I mean, the, 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 the phrase they used, uh, that kind of, you know, sort of underpines this cultural chauvinism with, with civilization. You know, they needed to, the, the Indians needed to become civilized. Mm-hmm. And he assumed that if they would follow this route, if they would learn to become farmers, uh, they could blend into American society. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but, but, you know, they had to quit being Indians is what it came down to. You know, so if they insisted on being Indians, then, you know, they were bound for, they, they were bound for extinction. Mm-hmm. But if they would just quit, being Indians and start acting like you know, sort of Europeans, they would they would be okay. They become part of American society, 
they could integrate in and they wouldn't have tribal identity. They wouldn't be Indians anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, as people, they they, you know, they 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 wouldn't be exterminated. You know, in, in their life, it was it was a benevolent approach. You know that 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 that, that they're trying to save these people from being exterminated mm-hmm. uh, by our lives. This notion of destruction of culture is, you know, sort of not as 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 admirable. But you know that was pretty much the way they looked at it. But the point that you initially raised that having these tribal entities within the United States, um, the war had proved that there was, you know, that 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 they were a potential uh, defense uh, threat to 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 defense of the country, and uh, it was certainly something that figured into their thinking and into the planning and, 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 and into their actions on acquiring land and um, relocating the, the tribes farther west. Do you recall any of the tribes that were working with other European powers, you know, getting arms and such? And and were those tribes considered, uh, did Monroe think those were enemies that could be exterminated, whereas other groups could just be let alone if they didn't fight the U.S.? Well, yeah, but it wasn't ever that clear cut. I mean, sort of one, there was, was what were the Creeks in the South. Mm-hmm. But the Creek War, where Andrew Jackson came to fame, was actually, it was a civil war. It was an intertribal war among the Creeks. Mm-hmm. There were pro-U.S. Creeks and there were anti-U.S. Creeks. You know, and the pro-U.S. wanted to... Um, formed closer ties with the United States, and the Antis did not, and they started fighting among themselves, and the U.S. basically went into the war on the side of the pro-U.S., the pro-U.S. Creeks. You know, so they were certainly, and the, the, the anti-U.S. faction were being supplied by the British and by the Spanish. You know, and, and no, I don't think it's that, you know, not even sort of like Andrew Jackson wanted to exterminate them. He just wanted to defeat them, and he wanted to, you know, sort of force them into... Uh, accepting American dom- U.S. dominance, mm-hmm. um, and then the same with the tribes in the north, you know, around the Great Lakes, you know, sort of the Shawnee and the Miami and the Winnebago and Wyandots. There, there were there were dozens of tribes up there mm-hmm. who all had very close trading connections to the British in Canada, mm-hmm. and so when the war started, they tended to side with well, they did side with the British. But again, you know, sort of they, they were defeated fairly early in the war and neutralized as an enemy. You know, again, you know, it was, you know, simply, you know, what, what, you know, what the overall strategy of dealing with these tribes was trying to convince them that they couldn't depend on the British or, or the Spanish, that when things got really dire, that the British and the Spanish would abandon them, which they did. You know, this helped break the bond between, uh, particularly in the Great Lakes areas, it, it broke the bond between between the, the elected Shawnee or the Miami or the Wyandotte and, and, and the British, mm-hmm. because you know they, the, the British pretty much abandoned them as the war went along. You know there are enemies we have to destroy them. You know there there are enemies they have to quit being our enemies. They have to recognize that they live within the territory of the United States, the United States government is dominant, and they cannot oppose the sovereignty of the, of the United States. You know, I mean, you know, there was this 
sort of strange relationship of where the U.S. recognized the tribes as being independent, mm-hmm. but you know, they had this weird term, you know, sort of domestic foreign nations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, if you can have some, you know, foreign domestic foreigners or whatever. <laughs> anyway, you know, they were willing to to deal with them in these ways, but. Uh, there had to be a recognition on the part of the tribes that even though they may, in theory, be independent peoples, they were really they were really subject to to the power of the of the United States. And if, as long as they were willing to accept that, then there there wasn't any overt hostility from the United from the, from the national government toward them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you probably know enough about this to know that. Sort of what the government thinks and what individual people think is not always always the same. And there were there was certainly a lot of anti-native feelings uh, among people in in the U.S. And you know, if you look at the language they use, they refer to them constantly as savages and mm-hmm. you know all these pejorative terms and all yeah. you know heathens and what have you. But you know, there's just this sense if they would not oppose the United States and if they would again, you know, sort of it, it sounds crass to say it, but if they would just quit being Indians, mm-hmm. everything would be okay. Uh, you know, it wasn't like dealing with with the African populations where racism had driven a pretty strong wedge. There was there were racist elements. There were certainly a lot of people who, who, who did not think Native peoples could integrate or didn't want Native peoples to integrate, but there were enough at the time who did, mm-hmm. and, and Monroe tended to be in that camp. I'm speaking with Daniel Preston, editor of the papers of James Monroe, Volume 7. You can find more information by going to the website for the University of Mary Washington and searching for Monroe Papers. If you like this podcast, please remember to rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Also, please sign up for my newsletter at warscolor.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. Please Follow, like, and comment on YouTube at WarScholar1945, on Twitter and Facebook at WarScholar, and on Instagram at Chris Alvarez WarScholar. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please check out my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at ChrisAlvarez.com and FullContactNerd.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please check out my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at SpacewalksMoneyTalks.com. Now back to the podcast. So let's uh, turn back to the um, the an- War of 1812 has ended, and uh, Monroe is, you know, he sees stuff going on in Europe and South America. Did did he want to send advisors or uh, observers out to see what was going on in the world, and how did he want to remake the military to deal with new threats? Well, I mean, the, 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 well, the first, that they came hard on the heels of the War of 1812 was the um, the Algerian War, hmm. um, which the, the United States, there wasn't an official declaration of war, but Congress authorized the president to use military force against Algiers hmm. um, and outfitted uh, two squadrons to go to the Mediterranean and exert a treaty uh, uh, from Algiers, which they did. So that was flexing military might. There was unrest for maybe six months, maybe into the fall, late fall of 1815, 
over whether the war with Great Britain would reignite. Hmm. There were there were a number of, of tensions, there were a number of unsettled issues, and there was some concern. And they were there was a real concern that one of these issues would somehow escalate, and that that the war would start up again. Mm-hmm. Um, by the end of 1815, NASA had pretty much had pretty much dissipated. But but for you know, as they say, for about six seven months after the end of the war, there was a concern that that that, that it may start up again. Mm-hmm. As far as with with Spain, um, there were tensions with Spain. The U.S. had been trying to acquire Florida since 1802, mm-hmm. and the Spanish kept saying they were willing to negotiate on it, but never would. And that colored a lot of the relations with Spain, that you know, the United States was, you know, the government, Madison, Monroe administrations were really disdainful towards Spain. They were angry towards Spain, but they didn't want to push anything to a crisis because they were hoping that they could acquire Florida through negotiation and, you know, and, and, and not through any kind of hostile action. And this colored, partly colored what was happening with the South American revolutions. Uh, the United States insisted that it was neutral throughout and, and tried to maintain neutrality, which it did to lesser greater degrees of, 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 of success. When it got into 1816, 1817, when it looked like the revolutions might succeed and, and the colonies win their independence, the United States did start sending commissioners to um, to South America to report back on what was happening. What you know, what were the prospects for independence? Uh, what were the prospects for co- good commercial relations with these incipient countries? What have you? So, uh, yeah, there certainly was some interest there. Some people in the U.S. argue in favor of U.S. military involvement in support of the revolutionary governments, uh, but the national government never did. There was never any consideration given to any kind of you know, actual military support for these incipient uh, independent governments. I want to ask uh, a little more about the Algerian War. Um, considering okay. the U.S. didn't have a very strong navy at the time, it seems kind of bold to send ships out across, you know, to Algeria. You know, what was the purpose of this, and what was the, well, the goal? Well, the Algerians had been the the other Barbary nations, uh, Libya, Tripoli, Morocco, had more or less reached. Uh, agreement with, with the European nations, with the United States, and had had treaties with them and were not capturing ships, taking prisoners, but the Algerians continued to do it. And they had been doing it in 1811, 1812. With the war in Europe and with war breaking out with Great Britain, it wasn't expedient for the U.S. to do anything. But then, you know, as soon as, as soon as, you know, the war in Europe was over, uh, the war in the United States was over, they sent these two squadrons, and there was one military action where the U.S. squadron encountered two Algerian ships, and they captured them both. Mm-hmm. And then they, they sailed into the harbor at Algiers, 
and were able to, to get a treaty which the day the ruler of Algiers pretty quickly repudiated, and they had to, to do a second one. But, you know, th- this was happening with all the, all the countries. You know, Great Britain sent a squadron as well, and they signed a treaty, and the Algerians immediately broke it. And the British sent another squadron, and they pretty much bombarded the city. Mm. And that put an end to it. When, when the British actually attacked Algiers, that brought an end to their depredations on shipping in the Mediterranean. Yeah, it was fairly bold for the U.S. to do it, but I mean, the Navy, as you know, had done well during the War of 1812. The problem was it was just small. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the concern was that, you know, if we only have 20 ships and we've got them spread around on the ocean, mm-hmm. you know, we don't have a lot of room for any kind of attrition. Mm-hmm. And so they basically pulled up all the they, 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 they took most of the ships uh, and, and just put them in port so that they could have them, and then they, they, they spent the rest of the war debating whether they would send the ships out as a group to fight or whether they would go out singly or or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the Navy had, had acquitted itself as well. So there was, a, there was a fair amount of confidence in the naval officers. Uh, the ships were certainly well-built. They had good ships. Mm-hmm. And the seamen were certainly skilled. I mean, the U.S. had the largest merchant fleet in the world. So there were plenty of, of experienced seamen uh, for the for the Navy to draw upon. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they would have considered it risky to, to send this squadron to Algiers. They had fairly strong faith in that these that these that this expedition would, would, would be successful. There was concern that if the about having a, a squadron in the Mediterranean in case the European war started up again. Mm-hmm and that somehow the American squadron would get trapped in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was you know, there was concern about that, that if the British and the French fleets started at it again, then that would be a danger for the U.S. But mm-hmm. um, as far as, as engaging with the Algerians, not so much. Considering that Britain and the U.S. had a common en- enemy in the Al- Algerians for this period, did Monroe ever consider... Did he ever countenance, you know, maybe alliances with the British? Or was the whole monarchy Republican thing too much? It wasn't so much the monarchy Republican dichotomy that was bothering him, but because of the European wars, because of the American War, Congress had pretty much stopped uh, diplomatic. The U.S. You know, diplomatic relations had pretty much come to a stop. You know, sort of one of the, the most interesting things that I think I, I worked on uh, for Volume 7 was in those months, years after the end of the war, uh, Madison Monroe pretty much had to rebuild the American diplomatic service. Uh, you know, it was appointing foreign ministers, deciding which countries the U.S. would have uh, diplomatic relations with, um, you know, reestablishing the consular system in, in, in foreign ports, and then, you know, sort of talking about treaties. Uh, what kind of treaties will we have? Do we, do we, do we need treaties? Do we need commercial treaties? You know, just sort of what will be the relation of the United States with Europe particularly, but 
you know, sort of other parts of the world as well, but particularly Europe. And what the U.S. was interested in was really reestablishing trade relations, reestablishing international commerce. And sort of military alliances, they, no, they weren't interested in any kind of military alliance. Uh, the, the real focus was trying to establish good, solid commercial relations with, with, with these countries. The, 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 the one aspect of, of anything that was military settled was the, uh, what, what's called the Russian Bagot Agreement Treaty for, uh, disarmament on the Great Lakes. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, and this goes back to what, what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Uh, this concern that somehow there was going to be an incident that would reignite the war. And there was still a lot of tension along the Canadian border around the Great Lakes. There were a number of episodes where there was near conflict between American and British troops. And uh, both sides didn't, you know, sort of neither, 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 not the United States, not Great Britain, wanted to go back to war. And they certainly didn't want to go back to war because um, uh, one British gar- a British garrison and an American garrison in Michigan started shooting at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one way they, they addressed this was uh, ending naval armaments on, on the Great Lakes, which was something neither wanted either because it was, it was a great expense. Um, you know, and they didn't want to spend the money to have a have a naval arms race on the Great Lakes. So they came to this agreement. Monroe negotiated it, most of it, when he was um, Secretary of State, and then the agreement wasn't actually signed until after he was president. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, they the Americans and the British pretty much agreed that there was this potential for for conflict in that region. And they took mutual action to disarm in, in order to prevent any kind of, of outbreak of, of any unintentional outbreak of hostilities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sort of was that an alliance? It was, it wasn't an alliance, but it was a case of the two, uh, former enemies working together to, 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 to resolve resolve a potential problem in a way that was beneficial to both. But there was really no interest in, in any kind of military alliance. It's interesting, the, the point about uh, saving money, how government coffers on both sides were sort of a, not big enough, you know, to, to sustain these, the, this, uh, the armaments. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Great Britain had severe economic problems, um, End of 1814, 1815, uh, you know, more from the European war than from the American war, but still, uh, there was severe unemployment. There was grain shortages. There were all sorts of economic problems. There were, there were riots. There really was a, a huge strain on the, on the British economy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the American, in the American, 1814, the American government was on verge of bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, absolutely no money. And then the British did the Americans a great favor, and they burned Washington. <laughs> and they and they and it scared the heck out of the people in New York and Philadelphia and Baltimore and Boston and Charleston and all. You know, it was well the British can land at will and burn 
Washington, they can do the same thing here. And they start pumping all sorts of money into defense. And it was, it was, it was used for local defense. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, the banks in Philadelphia loaned the government a million and a half dollars to build defenses for Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And New York, it was about the same amount. Charleston, I think, was a half a million. You know, sort of all the banks, all the wealthy uh, moneyed interests in, in the eastern cities started taking an interest. I mean, the United States had been trying to, you know, throughout the war, there were various bond and loan plans trying to raise money for the war, and they just they couldn't get anywhere with it. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of no one was interested in, in investing. And, you know, the, the government, the, the Congress would authorize the Treasury Department to sell a million dollars worth of bonds, you know, and they would sell $300,000 more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just wasn't a lot. But then they recognized, then when they saw this potential threat, uh, they started pumping money in. So, you know, in those last months of the war, uh, the government was actually in better shape than it had been earlier in the war because there was all this willing, there was, there was this new willingness to, to, in, to invest in, in the defense of the country. And then, you know, the recovery in the United States was pretty quick. Trade started up again, uh, so they started collecting you know, sort of tariff money, uh, land sales picked up, uh, you know, the, the government, you know, by, by the time Monroe became president, the Treasury was bringing in a surplus every year. Hmm. Uh, so, and then, then there was a depression in 19 that wiped it all out. Yeah. But, uh, but, the, but the recovery there was, was fairly quick. But, but there was, you know, sort of people like Monroe and Madison and, and the others who had been in the government saw how close to the brink the country was. And, you know, I mean, sort of, you know, were they worried about defeat, as you asked earlier? Not that so much. Were they worried about going bankrupt? Yeah, they were. Hmm. I mean, they thought, you know, sort of that was, you know, where, where the real danger, where the real danger lie. But they were, but that reversed itself. So Washington, the burning of Washington was an operational success for the British, but a strategic failure without them realizing it? Yeah. I mean, it really... I mean, for them, it was, yeah, you know, it, it was, it was a raid. You know, they raided the American Capitol and they burned the government buildings and they embarrassed, they embarrassed, it was a major embarrassment for the United States, you know, and, you know, it wasn't a strategic goal. You know, they, 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 they were in Washington for two days. Mm-hmm. They, they occupied the city and they, they burned some buildings and then they left. Mm-hmm. You know, there was never any intention to occupy it or to try to hold it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they, anticipated the galvanizing effect that that it was going to have on the American people. You know, and certainly they weren't anticipating that it would scare the people with money so badly that they would start giving handfuls of money for defense. So, um, yeah, it was it was an un, unexpected consequence on, on, on all points. Sort of no one really expected that kind of response to it, but it, it certainly had it. Where was Monroe at the time of the burning of Washington? Monroe said from day one, Washington was vulnerable to attack and, he, and, and they needed to do something for defenses. And everybody kept poo-pooing him, saying no, Washington is insignificant, they won't attack us. And, it, and in 1813, the British squadron in the Chesapeake Bay went up into the Patuxent River, Maryland, 
which was which is about I don't know thirty miles from Washington. And Monroe actually went out with a troop of militia to scout and see what they were doing. And they they went up into the Pawtuxet and then they left again. But then in eighteen fourteen they went back up and and again Monroe went out. He went out with a troop of militia and volunteers and spent about a week scouting the British, sending back reports, you know, conferring with William Winder, who was the American commander in the area on defense. You know, so he was so frustrated with not being able to do anything that, you know, to get on his horse and to go out and at least be able to scout the enemy, to be out in the field and be doing something became you know, a major relief, relief for him. I mean, he kept saying, they're going to attack Washington, they're going to attack Washington. Armstrong kept saying, no, they're not going to attack Washington. Why would they attack Washington? You know, and... You know, after, you know, there had been a plan to create a defensive system for the city. It was never executed. There was no plan for calling out uh, militia from neighboring states for defense. And it, so, you know, in, in, in the few days before, there was this mad scramble. You know, right up until the British attacked Washington, Armstrong and Winder were both saying they're not going to attack Washington. They're, they'll, they'll attack Baltimore. You know, why would they attack Washington? And you know, you know the British were crossing into the city before they both acknowledged that they were actually going to be attacked. <laughs> and so Monroe kept saying they're going to attack it. And you know he was there. He was taking an active role. In a way, he was a little too active. The British crossed over to to, to march into the city from from the north at a, at, a, at a town in Maryland called Blainsburg, where it goes across the eastern branch of the Potomac. Mm-hmm. And the Maryland militia was, was defending that crossing. And there was this attitude from the American Revolution and all through the War of 1812 that the militia really wouldn't fight. And when anybody was planning to put militia in the field, they always positioned them so that they had an escape route available. Mm. The sense was they would maybe fire one volume, but then you know they were going to pull out. They you know, they really weren't going to contribute anything. Mm-hmm. So the, the 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 general of the Maryland militia stationed his troops in positions where you know they could basically retreat um, as, as the British advanced. And Monroe was on the field, and he started moving troops around uh, that were they you know in one yeah there was a bridge across the eastern branch, and then the road into Washington. And the general of the Maryland militia, a guy named Stansberry, stationed his troops not across the road, but to the left of the road, because then they could you know, fire and then they could retreat easier. Yeah. And Monroe moved some of those around so they were across the road. Stansberry had stationed a regiment of militia on some high ground behind his front line so they could cover the retreat of the front line. And Monroe put them in what he thought was a better position. He, he, he moved some others around, you know, and, you know, he's, he's secretary of the state. You know, <laughs> he's secretary of state. You know, so he really has no authority for doing this other than, you know, he's out there and he's looking at the defenses and he's thinking, you know, you know, this is no defense. And so he was doing it. And then Winder showed up with the main part of the army from, from, and where he was more to the east, and he threw up a position up on top of a hill. He looked down and he thought, well, the Maryland militia are all going to retreat, so there's no sense of us going down where they are. We'll just stay up here, and maybe some of them will come up where we are. 
So, you know, there's three, four different people trying to organize <laughs> this this defense. Yeah. And um, it was a fiasco all the way along. And then they retreated back into Washington, and there was some talk about uh, Armstrong wanted to fortify the Capitol and, um, you know, sort of fight it out on Capitol Hill. And everybody else said, you know, sort of, this is nuts. We're going to get surrounded up here, and we'll all get captured. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they basically, they abandoned the city, and the army went off to the west, and um, most of the government officials then crossed over in, in, into Virginia. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of days later, uh, when the British pulled out, they, they came back in, and Madison fired Armstrong, and he appointed Monroe as Secretary of State, but he also made Monroe commander of the defenses for Washington. And so for about two weeks, he was in charge of the defenses. So it was getting, getting the, the militia organized and, you know, after they returned to the city. And then, you know, sort of one operation they tried that, that didn't work, but, uh, a British, the British, part of the British squadron had sailed up the Potomac and they had captured Alexandria, Virginia across the river from Washington. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the people in Washington were, you know, and basically they, they, they threatened to burn the city if they didn't. They threatened to burn Alexandria if the city didn't surrender. And the inhabitants of Washington and Georgetown thought the same thing. They thought they're going to come over and burn us. So they, they basically, you know, they was, there was, there were all these citizens running around in Washington and Georgetown saying, we have to surrender, we have to surrender. And Baroque kept saying, no, 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 nobody's surrendering. But he was looking at this squadron and he said, there's this squadron of British ships up here in the Potomac, we should try to capture them. Mm. So he got artillery companies and he got naval officers, and Oliver Hazard, Perry, and Stephen Decatur, and these guys were around. And he put them in charge of these batteries around on the Potomac. And they, 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 they tried sending fire rafts against the ships, and that didn't work. And I mean, the British were able to outgun the lightweight field artillery that, that, that the Americans put along the shore. They were able to escape, but you know, that one one of the militia generals was saying, you know, sort of, Monroe's here every night. He's in Washington taking care of business there, and at night he's out here in the camp making plans, you know, sort of trying to get things organized so we can capture this squadron. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was a sense of we at least have to try. We mm-hmm. have to try to do something. We have to be active. You know, there's an opportunity. We need to go after it. And this is what he had been saying all along. The, the British in early 1813 had established a base on an island at the mouth of the Potomac River. And Monroe was absolutely livid about this. I mean, you know, you know, you know it wasn't really a, a strategic threat, but just the notion that the British could have a base in the Potomac River. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wanted to attack it. He, he went to Madison, so we got to attack. And Armstrong and Madison said, well, we don't have the troops, and you know, we can't afford to lose anybody if we lose. And they just more or less said, no, we can't do this. And this was a lot of the frustration that Monroe had. We have to do something. We have to do something. And everybody else kept saying, no, we can't do it. We can't do it. Hmm. So when he got the chance, he um, he really he really went after it. And whether he always did the right thing, no, probably not. But you know, at least you know, he you know he was he was trying to do something. Yeah, energetic so, guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's great little letters. There, I mean, there's the, the, the letters that he was writing back to Madison, they're all they're, they're in the National Archives, so we've got them in Volume 7 of just these reports that he's sending back 
on the movement of the British and, you know, sort of, you know, more or less saying, Madison, you, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that, because here's what we're doing. And um, it's it's pretty interesting stuff. So just to turn to um, the research you did, you described um, some of the research, but considering um, the amount of material you had to work with, um, well, first, did you include all his letters in this volume for this time period, or did you have to edit and figure out the no. best? No. Um, I mean, you, you commented that this is volume seven. Mm-hmm. We are projecting to do a total of ten volumes of selected letters. Yeah. Uh, we have a universe of about 40,000 documents that we are working with, and we do about 600 documents per volume, so we'll be doing a total of about 6,000 documents altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be nice to do a comprehensive edition and do everything, but that would take many, many, many years and many, many, many dollars. And just there's no one is interested in committing that much time and that much money. They, you know, sort of Jefferson Papers was the first modern editing edition, and it started in 1950. Mm. And they are projecting to finish about 2030. Wow. Wow. You know, so there, yeah. yeah, And, and, you know, so long about the, the, the 1960s, the the, the sponsoring organizations realized that these kind of projects were going to be multi-generational. So interest in doing large scale comprehensive editions quickly evaporated. And so it was trying to find ways to do abbreviated versions. And so doing a select letter edition, yeah, as it is, it's going to take us 30, about 30 years to do, hmm. to do the 10 volumes all together. Wow. We've been relatively, um, I don't want to say fast, but we've moved along at, at, a, at a good steady clip. So I've, hmm. I've been pleased. The funders, our sponsors have all been pleased with the rate of our work on getting the volumes out. So hmm. you know, we're anticipating volume 10 will come out 2027, 20, 2028. And um, I don't know if anything will happen after that or not, but that will be the 10 volumes that we've planned. And then we also have, although we are only doing select letters, we did, our initial publication was a two-volume catalog of all the documents we had found to that point, Mm -hmm. which were about 38,000 documents that we called from about 180 different institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have now converted that catalog to an online digital database and it's up to about 40,000 documents now uh, with things we have found then. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, and, and that's that's a medium amount of, of documents to work with. Jefferson, Washington, they they number in the 60 and 70,000 category and then there are others that are more like 15 or 20,000. So, it's a, it's a hefty amount, but it's not overwhelming. Are all the letters collected in one place, or did you have to gather them from different archives or locations? No, we have documents from about 200 different locations. Hmm. Um, for Monroe's papers, the big collection of his papers, uh, the central collection is at Library of Congress. There's about 4,000 documents in that collection. Mm-hmm. There's a pretty good collection at New York Public Library. Um, 
or different places around have them. Um, the National Archives has the largest concentration of Monroe documents. He was in public service for so long. You know, out of the, out of the forty thousand, uh, we have probably twenty five thousand of them are are National Archives. Uh, you know, then there's you know papers of like Madison Jefferson and Library of Congress. There's something like six hundred Monroe letters in the Madison papers at, at Library of Congress. So we pull them from lots of different places. Uh, National Archives is certainly the central repository, particularly for our Secretary of State years. You know, for the records of the State Department and the War Department and all. Mm-hmm. That's really. But they're from you know we have we have stuff from all over from you know different. Uh, state historical societies, university library collections, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of lots of different places, um, British archives, those sorts of things. For Volume 7, uh, what was the most surprising thing you discovered in your research? One of, I don't know if I call it a surprise, mm-hmm. but one of the things that I never really understood and that I wanted to learn in working on 6 and 7 was how President Madison's cabinet worked. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of, what was the relationship of the president with the cabinet members, the, the, the members among themselves? Was anybody more influential than the others? Who, who did Madison listen to? Mm-hmm. And I got a pretty good sense of, of that, of how, of, of how the cabinet worked, of, of the relationship, and their relationship Madison's relationship with the cabinet members. Mm-hmm. Madison and Monroe were political allies for a long time. They were friends, but there were periods when there was a lot of friction between them. And in 1809-1810, there, there was a coolness between them. Mm-hmm. And when Monroe came into the cabinet in 1811, there was still tension there. And the tension remains until early 1814. And by then, whatever it was that was eating at the two of them had pretty much dissipated. And they became very close again, and they really started working really hand in glove. Hmm. And, um, anyway, and at that point, Monroe certainly became the dominant member of, of, of the cabinet. Prior to that, I don't think there was anybody who was dominant, and I'm not sure how much Madison was listening to any of them, but by summer of 1814, Monroe's position in the cabinet was was, was certainly solidified and dominant. Now, does the, do these volumes, do they just have the papers with a little bit of commentary, or is there more um, text, you know, uh, essays? And... We, no, we have, we, there, there, there is the text of the document. What we do is, is what we have, they're, they're all handwritten documents. Mm-hmm. So we, we employ student aides. We're at University of Mary Washington down in Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. And we have student aides, and their job is to make type transcriptions from the handwritten documents. Mm-hmm. And then the, the professional staff, there are, there are two and a half of us. There are two full-time and one part-time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go over them and we perfect the transcriptions and proofread them and get them so that we so that we have good accurate transcriptions of, of, of the documents. Mm-hmm. And then we write annotations for them. Mm-hmm. And the length and 
the, the number of annotations vary from document to document. Some documents don't have any annotation at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and others go into more detail. What we try to do with annotation, particularly for Volume 6 and Volume 7, for these cabinet years, mm-hmm. the correspondence is, is pretty complete. Everything is just, the, just about everything is there. So you know, we don't need to explain the course of the conversation, the, uh, the correspondence, this sort of thing. Uh, that's all, that's all, you know, we're able to, to actually use the documents to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are references to events or to people. And we write notes um, explaining who they are, what, what the events are that get mentioned, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And in some cases, as they say, the notes are, are more extensive uh, something that's more obscure or um, complex, and, and then there's a bit of a longer note. Some things are much shorter. I mean, you know, there'll be a reference to somebody who's a congressman, so we'll say, you know, sort of, John Smith, whatever his birth was, a congressman from Ohio, 1812 to 1821, whatever. You know, and, you know, and, and that sort of suffices to tell this person was. Um, so we do, we do have those. And then, and then there's an introduction that it's not really a biographical, it's not a summary of what goes on in the volume. It's, it's, it's a bit of a summary, but we try to focus on the documents. So that we have these kinds of documents and this is what they tell us. And then we have you know, these other documents and then we have documents relating to this, documents relating to that. So the introduction, you know, does tell the reader what's happening in the volume. But as I say, we try to focus more on the documents we use to tell to tell this story. Did you have for volume seven or, or maybe the others too, if you want to address that, any difficulty finding um papers that you knew suspected existed and, and couldn't really find? Or yes. Yeah, there there yeah, there there are frequent references in the letter. I received your letter of March twenty fifth. Well, you know, we can't find the March 25th. Yeah, there's, there's, there is a, a, a fair amount of, of that. Mm-hmm. And, and what we will do with notes on that is Monroe's writing to Madison, and Madison writes back, I've received your letter of March 25th. If March 20, if that letter is published in the volume, then we don't say anything about it because it's there. Mm-hmm. If it's not, if we don't publish it, but we know where it is, it's in the Madison papers, or it's here or there. We put a note in saying this letter is here, and and then maybe say a little bit about what whoever says in the letter. Mm-hmm. And then if we can't find it, we put a note in saying this letter has not been located. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there are certainly plenty of those, more than, more than I would like to see, but, you know, it's not just a case with Monroe, you know, sort of dealing with anybody, this pretty much happens of where, uh, for whatever reason, letters haven't been kept. Actually, since you mentioned the date, I, I had forgotten to mention earlier, um, in your email, you said, uh, April 28th, which is when we're doing this interview is James Monroe's birthday. So I guess happy birthday to yeah. him. Yeah. 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 And birthday, I mean, if you want to talk about it a little bit, it, it, it's a little bit odd. Because during his lifetime, Monroe never actually says his specific date of birth. Mm. And in fact, at, 
In one place, he said he was born in 1758. In another, he said he was born in 1759. Hmm. But he never says month or day. And the date we have is the date that's on his tomb that we guess came from the family. Hmm. But as an alternate, John Quincy Adams did a eulogy several months after Monroe died. And he said Monroe's birthday was like September 15th, 1859. Hmm. rather than April 28, 1758. Okay. Uh, you know, it's so like, you know, but, but, you know, Monroe never, he, you know, there, there is nothing that says exactly when he was born. So we, but, you know, sort of just calculating on when he did things as youth that we can document. The April 28, 1758 looks, it looks good. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it's sort of looking at when he went into the Continental Army, when he went to college with William and Mary. These sorts of things, you know, sort of being 1759 makes him too young. And we have nothing other than a date carved on his tombstone that says that for his birth, but there's nothing to adequately contradict it. Right. So, yeah. as far as we know, he was born April 28, 1758. Got it. So, where can people find um, find your work on the web or on social media or even the papers as well? The volume is published by ABC Clio. It's available through Amazon, through Barnes and Noble, or from from the publisher from their website. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a website through uh, our home institution, University of Mary Washington, which is www.umw.edu. We have uh, some pretty good content there. We have, I mean, the, the the central thing we have there, two things that are central, is we have our updated, that we update regularly, our database, which is a catalog of all known Monroe correspondence and documents, mm-hmm. giving, which gives summaries of the documents and, uh, and their locations. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is looking for, you know, and, and, and it's searchable, you can search by subject, by name, mm-hmm. what have you. And then, we have the text of all the letters that we have published in all, all seven lights. We don't have the annotations online, hmm. but we have the text of the letters. So those are available through our, our, our website as well. And then we have other assorted information. We have, you know, uh, there are, if I have given a presentation or another staff member has given a presentation someplace and it's been filmed or recorded, mm-hmm. um, we have those available, or we have links to them. We have links to other uh, sites that have information on on Monroe. So, mm-hmm. um, our, one of our assistant editors takes care of this site, and she does a really thorough job with keeping it up to date and keeping keeping good material on it. So, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, for my and then you know, for the older volumes, are certainly you know you can buy new ones, or there are. Here and there, there are used ones that, that you can pick up through, you know, through Amazon or someplace like that. But like any book, unfortunately, you know, sort of Amazon is is, is pretty much, unfortunately or unfortunately, how you look mm-hmm. at it, yeah. Amazon is the first place you go really to look for it. Mm-hmm. But you know, there are other other vendors as as well. The uh, yeah, the web page I'm looking at, the address I see is academics.umw.edu yeah. sla- yeah. forward slash. Yeah. James yep. Monroe papers. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and um, and I was hesitant 
to say that because it is only that address is, is relatively recent. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, people ask, I pretty much say, well, go to, go, go to the university's website and type in the, in the search box, type in Monroe Papers. Okay. And, 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 you, and you, you can, that, that's really the easiest way. But, but yeah, the address you gave is the, um, that, that, that right now, that is the official, the official, uh, URL for the, uh, for, for, for our website. Okay. All right. Well, um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, I don't think so. There are um, there's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And he had a huge career. He did lots of things. You know, and you know, particularly talking about the military aspect, as we said right at the very beginning, it was something that he was concerned about mm-hmm. throughout his his life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and how much. Having been an officer in the Continental Army influenced his his outlook on it mm-hmm. uh, probably a fair amount, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, sort of, it was always always something that he was interested in, always something he was concerned about, and gave a lot of energy and attention to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, very interesting talk yeah. about a very tender time, the beginnings. Yeah, of the US. yeah, yeah. One, one other thing I will throw in about volume one of the Monroe Papers. Mm-hmm. When Monroe became president in 1817, he decided to make a national tour, make a tour around the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and so in the summer of 1817, he went up through New England, up through New York, across to Detroit, back through Ohio, Pennsylvania, back to Washington. Was gone like 10 weeks, traveled 3,000 miles, something. Mm-hmm. And then in um, 1818, he did a little tour around Chesapeake Bay, and then in 1819, he went south. He went from Washington down to Savannah, across the Nashville, up to Kentucky and Indiana, and then, and then back through Virginia, back to Washington. And again, you know, sort of being gone like 14 weeks, traveling, I don't know how many miles, a lot. But the ostensible reason for him going initially was that he was going to inspect military installations hmm. that Congress after the war had voted money to improve, to build new coastal fortifications. And it was something he was very interested in. And his initial plan was he was going to set out, he was going to go with the chief of army engineers and they were going to go around and sort of look at forts and look at that sites for defense and you know, where, where, where works need to be built. He got the Baltimore, and the whole city had turned out yeah. because the presidents at that time they didn't travel, they didn't go anywhere, they never made speeches. Thomas Jefferson, during his presidency, did two speeches. He did two inaugural addresses. Hmm. Madison did three. So no one saw the presidents. No one heard them talk. Uh, the first public image of Monroe was published three months after he became president. So he's elected president. People don't even know what he looks. People don't even know what the president looks like. Yeah. So Monroe goes off on this tour, and the president is coming. The president is coming to our town, and everybody, people came out by the thousands everywhere he went. Hmm. And his initial response was to go back home because this wasn't what he had in mind. He thought he could just try, you know. But then he realized, you know, they're not really coming to see me. They're coming to see the president of the United States, hmm. and it's important for the people to be able to know their president, to be able to see him. 
And so he went on his tour, and just, you know, sort of everywhere he went, there were parades, there were balls, there were speeches, just all sorts of receptions. He toured universities, he toured hospitals, he looked at forts, he just did all this stuff. And we decided we would document all of this in one volume, because there was newspaper, the newspapers were full of you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, the president was traveling, you know, so every day in the newspapers, every newspaper, in the, you know, they're, they're chronicling where he was, what he was doing, the speeches were published, you know, the accounts of all this sort of stuff. So the volume, volume it, it's the tours, and it's not just his speeches or, you know, his correspondence, but it's all this commentary. It's newspaper commentary. Mm-hmm. It's accounts of where he was, and, and it's put together according to his itinerary. Hmm. So, you know, there's Baltimore, and then there's Philadelphia, and then there's New York, and just sort of on up on up around. But that's, from a military point of view, it's interesting because he was going around looking at military installations. And there's a, there's a lot, you know, and he did do it. There's a lot there of talking about, uh, you know, sort of meeting with uh, local officials and talking about defense and all these sorts of things. But it's it, but it just it was, it, we we wanted to give it special attention because it was something that was really unusual that up to that point never happened. And what's the name of that volume? It's volume one of the papers of Jason. Papers oh. Jason wrote volume one, and the exact title is "Documentary History of the Presidential Tours of James Monroe, 1817, 1818, 1819." Okay, so you sort of started. You you went back in time, or. So, it's so not we chronic. did, yeah. We, so we did the tours of Volume One, and then Volume Two starts chronological sequence. Got it. Got it. And it starts with his service in the Revolutionary War. What is the first thing we have here? We have uh, an excerpt from his autobiography, which he wrote in um, the late 1820s. But it, you know, it, it's, it's what we have about. It starts out where he talks about where he. He joins the Continental Army, and um, his participation in the in the New York campaign and um, Battle of Trenton and all those things. So yeah, so that's that's the start of so so the chronological sequence really starts with Volume Two. Okay, yeah, that's cool stuff. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah I, I feel really fortunate being able to do it and enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, if you're into the early American Republic, it sounds like stuff you really yeah. want to dive into. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of, he was, Monroe was involved in so many different things. But then it's like, you know, looking at anything like this, there are some events, you know, that are big, important events that never get mentioned. Hmm. You know, so we look back on it and we think, oh, well, this happens, you know, and he doesn't even mention it. Well, you know, it may not have been considered that big of an event at the time, yeah. or it just didn't fall within the purview of what he was talking about at the time. So, yeah. Um, it's a pretty good window on what's going on, but there's things there that don't get mentioned. Then there's things that get mentioned that don't, you don't find anyplace else. Right. So yeah. it's, yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. Anyway, it's been a lot of fun. Cool. Well, thank you for speaking with me. Well, well, thank you for being interested. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, 
on YouTube at War Scholar, 1945, on Facebook at War Scholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez War Scholar, and on Twitter at War Scholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. If you like to read, don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you.